John 1.18. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen as I read the passage aloud for us. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is God's word. The late uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, who used to be called one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, um, that is, he was a very outspoken atheist and kind of ushered in with three other people uh, this new movement of, of atheists. Uh, side note, um, there was actually a fifth horseman added some years ago, uh, the only woman, but she's no longer a part of this anymore because she recently became a Christian, um, but that's a different story for a different time. So Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, once described the statement, God is love, as white noise, a sentimental bit of propaganda designed to trick the simple-minded into thinking that religion is a benign force. Meaning, what he was saying was, God is love is what Christians say to trick simple-minded people into thinking that they are not doing harm in the world, all the while causing great harm in the name of this love that is God. This idea is not unprecedented. The famous philosopher and writer C.S. Lewis explains in his book, The Four Loves, how people tend to do the very thing their conscience would never otherwise allow all the name of love. He says, every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. Love for a woman may cause a man to break his vows and neglect his wife and children. The love of country may cause a person to commit unthinkable atrocities, and the love of the church or God may motivate people to actually do evil. If ever the book which I am not going to write is written, it must be the full confession by Christendom of Christendom's specific contribution to the sum of human cruelty and treachery. We have shouted the name of Christ and enacted the service of Molech. Moloch is the Canaanite god of child sacrifice, basically, that's what the Moloch required. Now the phrase, God is love, is found in 1 John chapter four, we read that last week. And this has indeed been abused by Christians, no doubt, it has been abused. It's been used to both manipulate people into thinking that some violation of human dignity is being done out of the love of God, or because God is love, all the while distracting people with this phrase as they have their foot planted firmly on someone's neck. And because this is true, and the church's abuse and many failures can lead us to forget the radical claim of Christianity, because this is true, and the church has done this, no doubt, what happens is it, it leads everyone, the whole world, and even the church to forget that the radical claim of Christianity is this, God is love. Actually, it has been said that Christianity is the world's great love religion. The Christian God comes to us as love, in love, for love. The radical claim, and I use the word radical not as lingo, but literally, taken from the Latin word radix, which means the very root of, as in the radical claim, the very root claim of Christianity is that Love is so characteristic of the divine that we are justified, even demanded to say that the God in whom we believe and profess 
and are invited to know is love itself. But there still remains a lot of obstacles, a lot of barriers, because not only does the church have a lot of questions to answer concerning the representation of this God who is love, but it seems God himself might have some bad press to deal with as well. If you've ever done a cursory reading of the Bible, or if you are on TikTok, there are a lot of things that happen in the name of this God of love that either doesn't make sense or doesn't seem like love in any stretch of the human imagination. It might be said that God is love, but is God really loving? I mean, there's a lot of violence in the Bible, what seems to be like demands for genocide in the Bible. There's plenty of smoting in the Bible. And this is not just the Old Testament. There's some smoting to be had in the New Testament as well. How's all that love? How's all that wrath and all that talk of anger love? How is the stuff we see in the church and the stuff we read in the Bible actually love? How can we as Christians lift our heads and say to the world that the God we worship and follow and are proclaiming as the great remedy of our broken world is, a, is the God that is love? And this is where I humbly submit to you that no matter how many times you've read those passages in the Old and New Testaments, no matter how many TikTok videos you've watched, or if you have any sort of viable attention span, maybe YouTube videos, just to get a little bit longer, no matter how many books you've read on the subject, you have not seen God. No one has until they see Jesus. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. Just stop there for a second. Don't breeze to the rest of the passage, just sit with that. No one has ever seen God. You know what this is saying? It's kind of audacious. It's saying that no matter what else you've ever read or watched or listened to about the Bible or about God, no matter what you've experienced from the church or as a spirituality, you, and not just you, no one has seen God. You might say, well, I've read the Bible, it doesn't say that Abraham didn't he see God? I mean, he, he ate a meal with God. Don't you have to see someone eat a meal with him? What about Jacob? Didn't he wrestle with God? Didn't he like, kind of catch a glimpse of God when he was wrestling him? Or what about Moses? Didn't he like, meet God and speak with God face to face? What about Elijah or Ezekiel? They all had like, visions of God. What John is trying to say here is that you might have bits and pieces, you might have epiphanies and theophanies, visions or even revelations, but you still haven't seen God, no one has. Now, what I do like in our current lexicon, seen means something deeper than see. I actually like this when you say, you haven't seen me, you don't see me, or I feel seen. It's not just that you see the person and maybe their hair color, their eye color, what they're wearing or what they do, but you see through that to who they are. You see them and you know them. So this, this very um, cultural saying is actually fits really well here. You might have thought you've seen God, but you actually, no one has actually seen God. This is what John is saying. No one has seen God, not until Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. No one has seen God but the Son, who is himself God, 
who is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So let's put some things together here. God is love. This is kind of how we started. This is the great and radical claim of the Bible of Christianity. God is love. However, the church has not done the best job representing this God of love. And also you have the Bible. I, I read the Bible and it's like, parts of it don't seem very loving. And there's so many questions that surround this. John says, however, wait, stop. You actually haven't seen God. No one has seen God. In other words, if God is love, you haven't seen him. And therefore, you haven't seen love. You haven't seen the love that is God. You haven't seen that. Well then, how do we even know what love is? How do we even begin to formulate any ideas of love if we haven't seen it? Well, John goes on. Well, the son, who is himself God, who is in closest relationship to the father, has made the God that is love known. So the next logical question is, how? How has Jesus made the God who is love known? And this is where we have to talk about the Trinity. And this is where I start to get shaky a little bit. Like, literally, I feel a little shaky. What John 1.18 is doing is actually showing us into the Trinity, into the Trinitarian love that is God. Look at the underlying parts of this text. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father is massively important when you're talking about love. Here's why. Augustine has said, if you see love, you see the Trinity. Meaning, the very nature of love is Trinitarian in shape and reality. The very nature of love itself is Trinitarian, and there can be no other way. Let me try, try to explain this. The great writing on love that probably would receive universal agreement everywhere on what love is, is written by St. Paul, found in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs, it does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, always perseveres, and the very next line is love never fails. Notice something about this passage. This is a beautiful passage. But when you sit with this passage, you realize that the aim of love is not the self. The aim of love is not the self. You, you can't say, no matter how many influencers try to convince you otherwise, that to have perfect love is to love so, have love solely directed at the self. That is not perfect love. I think everyone would at, at one point agree with that, even though people try to tell you to love yourself, which isn't kind of not working, because the essence of loving yourself isn't by loving yourself, by the way. That's, we'll get there. Perfect love is not loving yourself. Perfect love has to, has to leave the self into the other. Love must be directed to the other. Love must be interpersonal. In the same way, the love that is God, since it's the most perfect love, must be directed toward that which is perfect. Are we perfect? No. So the love that is perfect can't be directed 
solely to us and make the definition that is God love. It has to be directed to that, that which is perfect, but God is the only one perfect. So God's perfect love can't be directed first and foremost to created things, but must be first and foremost directed toward the one who is God. But how, since God is one, and perfect love can't be anything other than interpersonal? Back to Jesus' words. No one has seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus, who is himself God, would suggest that there is within God a kind of otherness, so that the love that is God is both perfect and truly interpersonal. Inside of God, there is perfect love given and received inside two, again, language breaks down, distinct others inside the perfect unity that is God. That is still one, by the way. Yes. Which is why John writes the next sentence. Jesus is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. Closest relationship denotes intimacy and oneness that is transcendent and beyond human language and comprehension. A love that is both given and a love that is received. As we all know, love suffers most when it is unrequited love. This is, I've seen this happen a lot of, a lot of times in this church where love is, is given and that love is not reciprocated. And because you live with unrequited love, a lot of us live with unrequited love in certain ways, um, that love cannot reach its full potential. That love cannot fully express itself. God's love is not unrequited. God's love is fully given and fully received inside the Father and the Son. God's love is received and given. Okay, hang with me. Now, the love that is God, or the God that is love, as the most perfect love, must exceed even a love shared between two divine persons. It has to exceed two. It can't, meaning love just can't be between two. Why? Well, have you ever had a a really close friend and that close friend fell in love and got engaged and then left and like your friendship didn't matter anymore? Anyone? I, um, I'm a very um, uh, interpersonal person. I love relationships. And when I was in high school, one of the reasons why I didn't date a lot in high school until I met Ashley, and that was more her fault than my fault, but anyways, <clears throat> is because I saw that whenever a friend started dating, you just never showed up anymore. Like, was never around. Like, was gone. I'm like, I don't wanna do that. I like, I like the interpersonal relationships. The reason why love has to exceed the two, because lovers can be so focused on their mutual exchange of love that they become a closed circle that excludes all others. And a love like that becomes its own kind of selfishness. 
<clears throat> Very crazy. Which, again, this isn't a marriage talk, but marriages have to be aware of this. They have to be aware of this. If, if marriages are to be a picture of Christ in the church and that marriage is closed and allows no one else in, it becomes its own kind of selfishness. Which is why marriages must be hospitable. But that's the marriage sermon for later. Okay. A love that becomes its own kind of selfishness. Okay, so um, uh, Frederick uh, Bauerschmidt, in the book that I quoted last week, which I recommend to everyone, is called um, The Love That Is God. He says this, the proof of perfected love is a willing sharing of the love that has been shown to you. The perfect love that God is must not simply be interpersonal, but overflowing. Shared love is properly said to exist when a third person is loved by two persons harmoniously and in community, and the affection of the two persons is fused into the one affection by the flames of the love for the third. Enter the Trinity. The God who is love is Trinitarian, and Jesus, who makes known this God, makes known the God who exists in loving union as Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally existing as one divine essence. Again, Bauerschmidt, the God who is love is not a thing, but an activity. The Father is loving the Son, and the Son is returning the love to the Father. And from this mutuality of love, the loving that is the Holy Spirit is breathed out the contented sigh of the eternal lovers. God is, we might say, the eternal and unconstrained play of interpersonal love. And it is from the heart of this eternal play of love that we creatures are brought forth into time and history. What he is saying is that at the center of ultimate reality is the God who is love. Or another way of saying it, a little less clunky, but still is true, at the center of ultimate reality is love. At the center of ultimate reality is love. This is, this is the Christian doctrine of who God is. God is love. Meaning at the very center of everything that is, is love. You were created out of this love. The whole universe was created out of this love and not created so that God could get love, like the gods of antiquity were said to create out of. To get praise, to get worship, to do the God's bidding. Because God was desperate for it. God didn't create us to receive his worship or service or to receive happiness from other lovers. The Trinitarian God had all of that in God's self already. He was created, he created us to share this love and to allow creation to be part of the great reality of the love that is God. Which is why, and I, and I had this text in there for Rachel, Rachel to read, but I took it out. So passages we read last week, when Jesus is praying at the very end of his ministry, he's like, make, a, make them one as we are one. I, us, I and you, and you and them. Like, bring them into this thing that we have. Bring them into this thing, God. Through my sacrifice on the cross, bring them into this Trinitarian love 
This is what Jesus is doing. Now, this is beautiful, I believe. This, I believe this is beautiful. But what does it matter? I mean, it's a good bit of theology. It's important. Um, but how does it matter now? How does this matter now? And this is not a trite question. What does it matter? What does the Trinity matter? It's not a trite question. But when C.S. Lewis himself asked when contemplating the Trinity, he said this in Mere Christianity, and now, what does it all matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three personal life is to be played out in each one of us or putting it another way around. Each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. There is no other way to happiness for which we were made. Why does this matter? According to C.S. Lewis, it matters because there's a deep desire for happiness and you were made for this happiness and that happiness, that contentment, that joy, that completion is only found in the Trinity. What does that mean? Our city is a city, San Francisco, is a city that is oriented towards love. A city of love, the city of love. Not to be confused with the city of brotherly love. Ours is just a city of love. We dropped brotherly, just love. <laughs> but the way our city has defined love, which has made its way out of this city to shape the entire world, is a love defined by what it wants, what it desires. To love and to be loved is to go after and receive what it really wants, what it deeply desires, and what it and what our loves or what our desires want becomes as close to one's identity as anything else one can be defined as. In Greek, the word for this kind of love is eros. Now, before you think that's all bad, like eros, isn't that where we got the word erotic and erotic love? Is, that's, it's, it's not all bad. It's not all erotic love. It includes that for sure, but it's a love that is shaped by desires. Eros love is shaped by want, passion, desire. It's eros in all of us that drives us out into the world to try to make a difference in the world. It's what drives us out into the world to try to become something in the world. All our pursuits, <clears throat> all our passions are driven by the fire of eros inside all of us. A lot of you that did not grow up in San Francisco but moved here were chasing some sort of eros, some sort of passion, some sort of deep desire that you had. That could be a very noble desire or not a noble desire. But it's eros nonetheless. It's deep desire, it's deep passion. It's this thing that sends us out of ourselves. Eros is what makes us human. It sends us out of ourselves to find ourselves, to make a self, to even um, make the world. Theologians call eros love an ascending love. Eros love it is, is an ascending love, a love that leaves itself in the great search of the other in order to truly find itself. Our city has celebrated this love. It has protected this love's ascent. It has enshrined the love 
this love as the best and in many cases the only true form of love in selfhood. Okay, God's love, though it has eros in it for sure, is oriented in a different way. It's a love that is, that is oriented towards giving. In Greek, this word is called agape love. Now it's interesting, um, in the New Testament, this is primarily the word that the writers use for love, is agape. And it wasn't that well known, it wasn't that, that widely used before the New Testament in Greek culture. The New Testament popularized, popularized this kind of love. It, 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 was, it was agape because it was different than all the other loves. This is a different kind of love that God has. It's a giving, a self-giving love. And theologians call this love a descending love. Eros love is an ascending love. It draws us out of ourselves to grab the thing that it wants, to grab the thing it desires, to grab the thing that it truly wants. That could be a person, that could be a thing, that could be a job, that could be something you deeply want. That could be money, it could be, it, it could be anything. It could be a hobby, it's just this, this Eros love and some of us just make new Eros loves all the time. All the time, and I'm, my heart is an Eros factory. I'm not joking, I, I, uh, what am I into now, right now? I'm just, uh, I'm really into um, uh, gardening. I'm starting to get into gardening, so then I start watching all these YouTubes about gardening, and I start buying all the right tools for gardening. Not just gardening, but ikibana, like the Japanese art of um, flower arrangements. Anyway, and my wife just goes, you always have to have some passion, some new thing you're going after, always. This is me, I, like, I, I'm just like, oh, I, I, my heart is always ascending to something. I'm always wanting to learn, like do this some new thing, okay. Agape love though is a descending love. It's a love that goes down, a love that humbles itself in the preference of the other, a love that, that is self-giving. It's a love you can say that is patient and kind, a love that is not self-seeking, that is not easily angered, a love that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, a love that never fails. And what you might think is coming next is to, you might think that what I'm gonna say next is that our city and its love is all wrong and that this city is evil and wicked and the worst of sinners and God has reserved a special place in hell for the city. <laughs> That's not what I'm gonna say. <laughs> Though I still get emails like that from people outside our city, that would be wrong. Listen, our loves get us into all sorts of torment and all sorts of our own personal hells. It feels like a curse. Eros sometimes feels like a curse because we are very inadequate lovers trying to love inadequate loves. We are inadequate at loving, trying to love something that's inadequate at loving us. There's bound to be a lot of bloodshed. But what I love about San Francisco is at least it's honest. No pretense. What you see is what you get. And what I see is, and what the world sees, is that a city that is bent on finding love, on ascending to the highest heights of love in all its forms in order to find itself. San Francisco is just like every other place, just more so, just a lot more so. And this is everyone's desire if we had courage to ascend to keep going after the thing we wanna see happen? And what I'm saying is this. 
is that our ascending love is only satisfied when it meets God's descending love. That's the only way eros finds its home, is in God's descending love. Our eros only finds its true home in God's agape. And this is what Jesus has come to reveal about God. Not only is God Trinitarian, interpersonal, perfect love, but it's a love that descends. A love that, if you read Philippians chapter two, keeps descending. Jesus' love descends from the very courtroom, throne room of God, down to humanity, down to a servant, down to being killed, down to being killed on a cross. It keeps going down. It keeps descending over and over and over again. So Jesus comes to show us this love, to reveal that this is actually what God has been like all along. You've had bits and fragments and pieces, but I'm here to reveal to you the genuine icon, the genuine image, the actual image of God is found in the face of Jesus. And so when Jesus is revealing who God is, who God is he uses a lot of parables because, to be honest, you can only start talking about God in, in like words like like. God is like. And one of them that he, <clears throat> he uses is a very popular one called um, what we call the parable, uh, parable of the prodigal son. What's interesting about this parable is that for those that think that God is this angry, vengeful, abusive being, that wants nothing but your destruction or your annihilation. Or a God that just coddles you and gives you every little thing you want. Jesus shows this parable about uh, a dad, a father, who has two sons and one son decides to leave, to not just leave, but in, leave in hatred, leave in almost rebellion and asks for his inheritance um, before his dad dies, which is, I mean, try that. That doesn't go over, shouldn't go over well with your dad or your mom. Like, could you just give me my inheritance now and you just act like you're dead because you're dead to me? So that's kind of what's going on. So he leaves, and as he leaves in a faraway country, he's following his eros. Like, this, this kid had eros. This kid had desire. And he, he had enough money to, to get all the things that his desire wanted, all of it. And he followed that thing all the way down to slavery. Because ultimately when we follow our eros completely, it, it ends in slavery and that's the only way it ends. And something, he wakes up one day, which is, which is an act of grace. When you are enslaved to your own form of personal hell and sin and you have an aha moment, you have this moment of grace where you're like, what if I went back? And so he has that moment, what if I went back? If I went back home, I'm eating with pigs, I'm literally eating with pigs, I could go back home and my dad's servants that work for him live better than I do, I could just go work for him, that's what I'll do. And he, he goes back home and his father, who's, while the son was still like walking up the road to the house, spots his son, which means he was probably there the whole time waiting for him, every single day, waiting. He runs out runs out and like completely um, 
tackles him, and um, well, Rembrandt has a picture. Uh, do we have, oh, here's a picture. Here's like a zoomed in picture of Rembrandt's rendition of the prodigal son. And what's interesting about Rembrandt's return of the prodigal son um, is that this son, who, who is reckless after his own eros, is returned home, and he's been to hell, and you can tell from the painting. Um, he's dirty, filthy, his clothes are torn rags. His dad, look at his dad, his luxurious, beautiful robe. That's what he came from, and that's where he is now, in rags. His um, head is shaved like, um, like a slave's head is shaved. And the lighting of uh, Rembrandt's painting is you, the hands stand out. And what's interesting about the hands that Rembrandt painted is that as they rest on his son, uh, the right hand is um, the painting's right hand, which is the left to us, is feminine, and the, and the left hand is masculine. And he didn't do that because, like, you know, you start painting, you're like, oh, I'm gonna go with this. Um, <laughs> this is the way, you know, like, sometimes our art does that. But he, he didn't do that. That's not what he was doing. Rembrandt seems to want to capture both the fatherly and motherly natures of God. And the son's head in his chest, this is the father just receiving the son back. And it's a masterpiece because this is what it's like to be in the hands of God. Jesus reveals to us a God, the God of love, who, con who continues to descend to meet us. And if you know the rest of the story, the dad takes off the robe, puts it around him, takes off a ring, puts a ring on his finger as an unconditional love, throws a feast and a party. The story doesn't end there. There's another part of the story, but we're not gonna get into that today. This love that God has, that God is, not just has, God is this love. Jesus comes to reveal that this is what God is like. Would you stand with me as we pray?